As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Here with me to discuss the USA's 1-0 win over Jamaica in the knockout round of the Gold Cup is a man who always stands up to a high press. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> oh, Taylor. Um, if only my soccer skills allowed me to play through a high press. Tactically speaking, I think that's a great call. Play through that high press all day, even if the U.S. maybe didn't play through the press quite as cleanly as I would have liked last night. Hey, still, a win is a win. A win is a win. There were some rough moments. There were some Route 1 moments. There were some good passing and pretty soccer moments. But either way, the U.S. with that one no win, they advanced to play Qatar uh, in the semifinal. Qatar beat El Salvador 3-2 in the other quarterfinal. We're not here to talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about Qatar a little bit later at the end of the show. We are here to talk for probably too long about USA. Jamaica, Joe, <laughs> let's get to it. Let's start with Jamaica. They were missing some players in this overall squad, but it's still a pretty strong one. Leon Bailey did not get off the bench. I know some Jamaica fans were sad about that. Bobby Reed and Corey Burke kept the U.S. very busy. What was Jamaica's approach to this game as you saw it, Joe? Shape-wise, I saw Jamaica mostly in a 4-4-2, 4-4-1-1, but sometimes the midfield looked really staggered as they stepped to press a man or stepped uh, backwards and dropped to, to help uh, provide some defensive solidity deeper down the field. But either way, in that shape, Jamaica's real goal from the start of this game 
was to step forward and press and cause the U.S. real problems. Inside the first 20 seconds, they'd already deflected a pass from James Sands and deflected a pass from Miles Robinson and were giving the U.S. some problems high up the field for Jamaica, uh, deep down the field, I guess, for the United States. And that kind of continued. They didn't cause the U.S. such extreme problems that they were creating these high-level repeatable chances. They had chances, don't get me wrong. But it was really just I don't know if this was Jamaica's plan or if this was the U.S.'s plan, maybe a combination of the two, but the game was frenetic. And I think Jamaica was okay with that. And it looked to me like the U.S. was okay with that. The 20, the first 20 minutes of this match, Taylor, I, you almost couldn't convince me that this was the New York Red Bulls and Red Bull Salzburg just playing <laughs> soccer tennis, right? It was so yeah. direct. Daryl DK must have felt right at home because there were some real Barnsley aspects to this, even though I don't think, sadly, he had a very good game. Uh, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, I will t- I will take the, the what you just said. I will take a, a part of a quote from Greg Berhalter uh, in breaking down the way this game played out. He said, Jamaica has a very robust defense. Give them a ton of credit for the way they defend the penalty box. They're a very physical team. We knew it was going to be a challenging game, and the game plan was to play guys 60-plus minutes and then bring in guys that we feel are going to help us win the game. We'll talk about who some of those inv- individuals might have been a little bit later, but I think that is pretty telling that I think for Berhalter, he knew this was going to be a physical game. He knew it was going to be demanding and probably expected Jamaica to, if not press aggressively throughout, then at the very least try to kind of get in the U.S.'s face, make them uncomfortable, and maybe dictate the way this game was going. And I thought that quote was really interesting. Hope, hopefully it's not just him kind of covering bases and making himself look better after the fact. But I think there's something to be said for how young this U.S. team is, putting them in a position to kind of sink or swim, to deal with that pressure, to deal with the intensity of the moment in a knockout round, and how do you respond to that press? And I think that they kept it nil-nil, got a few chances of their own, but for the most part, as you said, Joe, didn't really give any clear, clear-cut ones to Jamaica. There's a lot of caveats here and wrinkles, but I think overall, <laughs> I think this was an important game for the United States, given how young and, and inexperienced this team is. I love the way you phrase that, Taylor, as this being an important Poorly. game. No, no, no. Like, I think you're right because it's hard from the start of this tournament. We've had – I'm not saying we've had challenges contextualizing this, but it's kind of a complex situation where a lot of the U.S.'s best players aren't playing. And so we're really learning more about all these younger players or a lot of younger players trying to fill out the rest of that World Cup qualifying roster while also still balancing the desire to win a tournament. And those things don't really – fit together. They don't mesh together. And so it's it's almost two conflicting ideas. Because if you want to get a look at Gianluca Busio, that's great. And you might learn a lot about him as a player, but there's also a chance, like we saw against Canada, that he's going to get blown by over and over again. And that, that didn't happen nearly as much against Jamaica. So maybe that's a poor example. But you get the idea. This is a this is a challenging situation. I feel for Greg Berhalter in certain ways with how the calendar is set up and, and the way that he's chosen to approach this. So I think the word important is good because this was an opportunity for so many young players. This roster for the U.S., incredibly young and inexperienced. Daryl DK, Matthew Hoppy in that front line, two young players. Busio in midfield. Shaq Moore is not super young, but he's pretty inexperienced at the international level. Sands, Robinson, Vines, Turner, all players that don't have a lot of experience at the international level either. This was a chance for those guys to get reps in a knockout game against a good team. Jamaica is a good team. And things weren't pretty. And we'll talk about what went wrong. And I have some thoughts on why things weren't as aesthetically pleasing as we've often come to expect under Berhalter. I'm sure you do too. But still, it's hard for me to be down about this performance because it was an important game and it was an important performance and a solid result. 
Uh, some friends of mine in a group chat asked me like what my expectations were for this game before kickoff, mm. and I did say DK to score a million goals. That was mostly in jest, but trying to think about it and trying to kind of come up with a cohesive answer for like, oh, I think Jamaica are going to do this. I think the U.S. will do this. My, my honest answer was I have very few expectations for this team, so anything they do is solid. If they're bad, I think a bunch of names get scratched off the depth chart. If they do well, then they don't for another game or two. And I think that is sort of my approach to this one was if they win, that is excellent. If they don't, there will be reasons for it that we will discuss, and that will make me feel better. But I will also feel somewhat okay with it because, as I said, this is a stronger Jamaica team than I would say it is a U.S. team. In terms of the available talent that Jamaica have, I think they brought a lot of strong players. For the U.S., we've talked about it many times. This is not their A team. I wouldn't even say it's their B team, necessarily. So, for the United States to then still find a way to get that win, to kind of fight through some of the adversity, fight through some of the challenges, even some of the time-wasting and sort of disruptions to the game, I, I thought w- was impressive because I thought the first half w- was difficult to break down. It was difficult to understand for me. And I think, honestly, this whole game, that it was Matthew Hoppy scoring the goal uh, to, to win it, felt very fitting for this overall game because Hoppy, I think, at times, was the U.S.'s most electric player in trying stuff when it was the right moment and then at other times was trying stuff in the very much wrong moment and I think tried to do too much and went on too many dribbles and I was sort of of mixed minds with him and then he scores that goal and I think you could see that in the Twitter response even jumping ahead a little bit that like so many people I think after the game were like say what you want about Hoppy but uh he had a spark tonight or that goal is gonna lift him up or you know he had some good moments he had some bad but really he brought that energy and I think a lot of people maybe struggled to categorize this performance from him and from the U.S. team as a whole just because it was a little bit disjointed, but then other times it seemed like they were doing what they wanted to do. They were reactive, but then at times proactive. They were sloppy, but at times controlled. And so I think in the end, a 1-0 win against good opposition with these players kind of having to rise to the occasion, I I come away from it more positive than I expected to be. So do I. And it's kind of weird, right? I do think it goes back to the context surrounding this because, yeah, the, I, I have beef with some of the different aspects of this performance. Not that Greg yep. Peralta cares about that, nor should he, really. I think he does. I think he's waiting, <laughs> Joe. He's been waiting the whole night. He was looking for the quick take. We didn't put it out. Uh, it was too late. <laughs> and i, I got to be honest. I was, like, sort of maybe reconsidering that one of, like, well, we could probably do a quick take. And then as extra time loomed, I thought, we're not doing oh, a quick man. take tonight. <laughs> no, thank you. Sorry, I hijacked your point. Go ahead, no, Joe. No, that's fine. Well, I guess my point kind of flows into talking about the U.S. Because I want to get sure. into what, what they did. So I'm going to walk us through the U.S.'s shape. I kind of talked about Please. a bunch of the players already, which is my bad. But it was Matt Turner in goal in a 4-3-3. I saw the lineup coming out before the game, and it looked like a 4-3-3 to me with James Sands and Miles Robinson as the two center backs. Not a spot we've seen James Sands in in this tournament. We've seen him play center back in a back four for NYCFC, but not yet for the U.S. men's national team. So I was excited to get a look at him there next to Robinson. Then to fill out the back four, it was Shaq Moore on the right and Sam Bynes on the left. In midfield, I got this wrong thinking about the lineup pregame, but it was Kellen Acosta at the six, Busio as the right central midfielder, not the six. I thought he would be the deepest midfielder, but he wasn't. So it was Acosta and then Busio to his right and Sebastian Legette to the left. Then in the front, it was Daryl DK as that number nine, Paul Areola back and fit as the right winger, and then Matthew Hoppy as the left winger. But of course, those guys tucking inside and dropping and filling a lot of different spaces. Taylor, I've talked for a good bit just now. What did you think of this lineup? Were you surprised? by any selections did you think this was going to be enough to get it done 
Uh, I was pretty surprised, yeah. And I, I had the same idea as you did with Busio and Acosta. It's one of the, f- I try to like get the lineups written down if I feel like confident in what they're going to be. Uh, and the way Google listed it, the way FopMob listed it, and I think even <laughs> SoccerWay, it was just all over the place. And so I, I did hold off. I had some ideas. I thought we would get Legette as that central midfielder on the left side with Hoppy ahead of him and they would sort of, rotate or interchange and we'd see Hoppy drop deep. We'd see Legette kind of move wide or move forward to kind of pick up some of those spaces that would then be opened up. My assumption was that we would have Sam Vines on the overlap on that left side with Shaq Moore staying home or if Sam Vines stayed home then Shaq Moore uh, getting into the attack but I also thought it might be more of like a 4-2-3-1 shape or even like a 4-2-2-2 if we're getting really nuanced and nerdy uh, just because with some of the personnel like Paul Areola seemed like a more out and out right winger but then Matthew Hoppy, I, did, I didn't expect to even try to be a left winger. Not that he couldn't do it, but that we haven't seen him do that. We've seen him be that sort of interior left forward who also becomes a central midfielder when we need him to. And so I was kind of confused how all these parts would fit. Uh, but in the end, I think they fit really, really well, or at least pretty well. And I was with you that I thought Busio would be that sort of deepest midfielder with Kellen Acosta alongside him to facilitate the build out. And maybe that would have helped, uh, the U.S. establish more possession in the first half. But I think overall, Kellen Acosta, uh, as we've already talked about, like didn't have the, the 100% clean lockdown game that we were like, yep, this is his position. He can do it. I still saw some of those giveaways and some questionable decisions, but I saw him cover ground, make big challenges. And I think I had some concerns alleviated in those opening 10 to 15 minutes after that first minute had me thinking, uh-oh, the U.S. might not be set up to deal with this pressure. But I think uh, th- they did, and they dealt with it pretty well, at least in the first half. I think Acosta is a pretty good microcosm of the U.S.'s performance in this game in a lot of ways. I know you already kind of made this point about Hoppy, but Acosta is another guy who I think fits into this category. It was like when he's on the ball, it was like he did 80% of it really, yep. really well of yep. every individual action. And then 20%, it could have been the, the first 20%, but more often it was the final 20%. It, it just went horribly wrong in certain moments. Like he'd get on the ball, he'd see his man, he'd break lines, and then someone would intercept in that last moment. Or he'd get on the ball and, uh, you know, he wouldn't be able to string that pass together and build up, or his touch wasn't clean enough. There's a moment inside the first 10 minutes where the U.S. is building up and Shaq Moore plays a cost to the ball. And I think he's checked his shoulder and seen Bobby Reed, but for some reason there's a disconnect in his mind, in Acosta's mind of, okay, Bobby Reed is closing me down from Jamaica's front line, and oh crap, he's closing me down. I need to get my body in front of him or move the ball out of the way quickly, and he doesn't do either one of those things. And I can tell you one thing possession. really quickly. On yeah, that please. one, uh, Shaq more plays to his left foot. And I think that's, that's part of it is because it's more under pressure. And I think he just doesn't want to cough up the ball. So he mm-hmm. tries to play it central to Acosta. I think to, with the idea being like, just swing your leg through it and hoof it up the field, which he would be able to do if it were played to his right foot. But because it's to his left, he has to sort of adjust. And I think you're right. He doesn't do enough there and he doesn't do enough to kind of put himself between the ball and the defender who's pressing. And I think anytime you give a pressing defender just a whiff of, oh, there's the ball, I can get to it. They're going to be alive to it. And I think in this case, they were. So a little bit of blame to Shaq Moore, but I think you're sure. right, though. Overall, Kellen Acosta needs to have done better there because that's what we expect from that sort of holding midfielder. And Acosta, defensively, I thought was was really strong in this game, covering ground. He has a great tackle uh, in, in yes. the first half, sliding all the way over to the far side to, to snuff out a play. The U.S. in general, in defensive transition, I thought was downright phenomenal in this game. They were intense. They were tracking players down. The positioning at times when they lost the ball was not 
especially clean. But man, they, they recovered. Busio recovered so hard and so often, which is not something we saw at all from him against Canada. And I was really encouraged by that. Acosta did great defensive work. Leggett was tracking back and winning balls. Ariel, I mean, the list goes on and on. So that stuff was really good. Taylor, my, my biggest beef with the U.S. in this game, and I guess my, it's just a point of confusion for me, is why they were so direct. I talk about, I talked about this being a Red Bull v. Red Bull kind of game which is just not really what we've come to expect from the United States under Greg Berhalter. We've seen it at times. We've seen it in big games in the past. But man, almost from the start of this match last night, the U.S. were hoofing balls long. And there was some strategy behind it, like Miles Robinson striding forward, breaking lines with his dribbling, and then playing a chipped ball forward into Sam Vines or into DK. I think that's fine. But there was also, to me, it seemed just a ton of directionless direct play, which felt so anti-Berhalter's vision in a lot of ways. And maybe it had to do with the opponent. Maybe it had to do with the situation or the field quality, which was not the best. But that was my problem. And Acosta was playing into that. Busio and Leggett were both playing into that. Everybody, especially the center backs too, all of the U.S.'s outfield players were playing into that overly direct style. And it confused me a little bit, Taylor. Uh, it confused me as well. And that was the thing that I wanted to prioritize in the rewatch. I had two things. One was that exact thing that you just described there. It was written down briefer, but I like your description. And two was a point you made about Daryl DK's uh, hold up play. I have mm. thoughts on both of those. I have maybe an explanation for why the U.S. did go so direct. Uh, but first, I'm going to leave people in suspense. Uh, we're going to hear from today's sponsors and then we shall return. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We are discussing why the U.S. looked a little maybe too direct at times, a little too disjointed at times in that first half. Uh, Joe, have I summed up your concerns uh, such as they are? Yes, brilliantly. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think th- this is the type of game where, where Jamaica, with the intensity of that press, their goal was to disrupt and make the U.S. uncomfortable. And obviously they do that, as we've already talked about, inside the first minute with Sands coming under pressure. And from then on, I think the U.S. was always aware that that pressure was going to be there. And I think there was an awareness that was never like dealt with or resolved. And so if you think I could be under pressure at any moment, but you're not then using that to sort of change your options or reevaluate, you continue to play the same way. What I think that ends up being is I'm going to be under pressure in a second. I've got to make a decision. I don't have time. I'm just going to get rid of it. And I think there were moments when the U.S. just didn't want to get caught, didn't want to be exposed or leave themselves vulnerable. And so they went that route. And 
to some extent, that's understandable. You would like to see them try to dictate the tempo and the overall style a bit more. But I also think once your team starts to do that, it, it becomes hard to know what the unified approach is going to be. That if... Uh, and we've talked about it before that like there are those games where a player will be saying like, hey, slow down, slow down, let's keep possession. And as soon as they get the ball, they go direct. And sure, that's being hypocritical. But I think it's also a product of if you're not in a rhythm, if you're not in kind of a, a sustained sequence of possession where you're moving the ball and everyone's getting touches and you are sort of learning to deal with that initial pressure of, oh, someone's going to pressure me. Uh, I'm going to kick it long. But instead you turn out of pressure and you keep the ball and you keep it moving. You allow yourselves to grow. And I think so often we call that putting your foot on the ball. But here, I guess it would have been putting everybody's instep on the ball multiple times <laughs> in a couple, like a couple minutes just to reestablish, Hey, here's how we're trying to play. But if sometimes it's a long ball directly into DK that works and then sometimes it's a long ball that doesn't or it's a long ball into the channel that goes out for a goal kick but then the next time it goes out for a corner and the next time you get possession and then the next time it goes back out for like Jamaica to get the ball like it's just so scattershot that I think it was really hard for the U.S. to overall feel like okay here's what we've learned in this first half and it's why there are chances off direct passes there are chances off, off of good passing sequences but then there are also like op opportunities for Jamaica to counterattack because the U.S. have been too slow in possession or been too direct and left themselves exposed. And so I think it just ended up being a game that didn't have an identified approach for the U.S. aside from don't make big mistakes. And anytime your goal is don't make big mistakes, you're not really playing a proactive style. You're playing a very reactive style, I would argue. So... Would you say, Taylor, that the things you're just describing where players maybe aren't always getting on the same page and are are just overall trying to not make a mistake, is that is that more of a mental thing? I'm not even necessarily going to call that a mental problem because mm -hmm. it might just be a reality of the situation. But is that is, is that a fair categorization of that? I'm going to say uh, maybe this is being too charitable. I don't think it is. I'm going to say it's an experience problem that we're having. We have a bunch of guys who've never been in this position of a knockout round with the national team and playing against a team that is high pressing, that is going to be physical, that won't hesitate to kind of knock you off the ball. And that's a thing that Burhalter can coach and set them up to play well tactically but you can't really it's the tyson quote about getting punched in the face like as soon yeah. as you get sort of high pressed by jamaica you're gonna find out can i handle that or am i just gonna kick it long every time and i think this was a game in which berhalter wanted to let the players figure it out a little bit more and let them adjust to what was being asked of them by jamaica and i think some players did that at a faster rate some players did that at a more consistent rate and we'll talk more about individual performers later but i think this was a game in which Burhalter, I think, wanted to see what his players could do in response to strong opposition, uh, and I think he got some answers. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, and I didn't really think about it in those terms as I went back on the rewatch because this was something I was looking for as well. All right, and I, have, I want to hear your, I have I want to hear your ideas. Yeah, yeah, I have a few explanations as well here. So, explanation number one is uh, field was bad, right? Field was bad. The ball right. was bouncing. Ball was Thank bobbling. You. Uh, that's an excuse though, and I, I don't know how much to, I don't know, I, I don't know how much that factors well, in, but that's, that's reason number one that I've Can I, Joe, in. can I interject just to say, cause I'm glad you brought that one back up. I meant sure. to add that one when I was going on, on my monologue. I think it, it's another element of unpredictability. And if you yeah. don't know if the ball is going to roll or bounce up or sit up or hold up, like it doesn't let you ever get into that rhythm of, I know where the ball is going to be. I know how it's going to roll. I know the speed it's traveling and you can sort of, 
autopilot is the wrong way to put it, but it's, it's you're playing on instinct at that point. You don't really have to watch the ball. You're looking at what everyone else is doing because you know where the ball is going to be, how it's moving, how it's going to sit up. But if you don't know those things, you have to pay more attention to it. If it, if that first touch is a good first touch, but the ball still pops up because there's a little seam there, it, it doesn't do what you're expecting and you have to adjust. You have to change your calculations a little bit on the fly. And when you're doing that, it's taking your attention off what everyone else is doing. And it, and it again, just sort of, it keeps adding a little bit of static, a little bit of, uh, of a hiccup. It's like when your stream just catches every <laughs> like minute or two, like just for a second and you're like, ah, like I can't quite, is it going to go away? Is it going to keep happening? And it just disrupts. It's just a tiny disruption. That's not really even a big deal. You won't even remember it. But at the same time, it makes it harder to get into the kind of flow of the game. That's uh, that's genius. AT and T Stadium is Taylor streaming. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's perfect. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so the field, I do think, is a problem. And Taylor, yep. I love that analogy. Um, I, a couple other more controllable factors that I noticed. The the biggest one being the fullbacks for the U.S. in this game. Shaq Moore and Sam Vines were so high up the field, like so, so, so high. So there's a moment in the 34th, in the 40, 41st minute. Oh my goodness gracious. In the 41st minute when this is the Bucio yes. turnover, Taylor, that leads to the Bobby yep. Reed shot that was real scary and probably the best chance that either team had in this game. That was the Maybe one that made outside like, they didn't have any clear, clear, clear yeah, cut chances. Yeah. Like they had it's that borderline. one that was pretty clear cut. <laughs> it's borderline. So it's that sequence. And so the sequence starts with James Sands building the ball or playing the ball out of the back and he's driving forward a bit and then he plays a line breaking ball into Busio who's high as that right sided number eight he's high in between the lines and Busio loses that ball because I don't think really he ever looked comfortable in that uh you know aggressive position high on the right side and that changes in the second half I think to to Berhalter's credit but Busio gets in the ball and he turns it over and at the moment that Busio turns it over he is probably 30, 35 yards ahead of James Sands. And then Shaq Moore, as the right back on that side, is probably 8 to 10 yards ahead and wide of Busio. There's no, there's no angle initially for Sands to play the pass wide to Shaq Moore. His only option is to either play it back to Matt Turner to square it over to Miles Robinson or to break lines to Busio. And when you lose the ball, if you're Busio in that moment, then your transition defense is kind of toast because Jamaica counter right into the hole that Shaq Moore leaves because he's so high. So that's, I mentioned earlier, some of the positioning not necessarily being the soundest when the U.S. lost the ball. But Shaq Moore and Sam Bynes in turn on the left side being so high oftentimes left Miles Robinson and James Sands with only one option to to play forward and, and not to play through the fullbacks with short connecting passes, but to play really aggressive and, and at times hopeful long balls. And sometimes it was great line-breaking passes that the U.S. could play forward. But a lot of the time it was, okay, we're going to play the ball up to DK or we're going to play the ball in behind to Hoppy or to Ariola, And it just resulted in a real lack of rhythm for the U.S. And that that I don't understand. I don't understand why you leave your fullback so high. The U.S. was trying to play that bounce pass from the eight to the fullback and then break down the side. I, I do get that part. But you can't do that every time. And it felt like to me that positioning was at the expense of providing some rhythm and, and gathering some time on the ball, which the U.S. really didn't get to like the 69th, 70th minute of this game. Let's stick with that specific moment for, uh, for a second, though, and we can maybe broaden that out from there. So when it is Sands playing that ball into Busio, he tries to kind of, as you said, do that first time, the bounce pass out wide to Shaq Moore, who would then be in space, receives it, maybe takes that touch down the line, and away we go. Would you have preferred to see uh, Shaq Moore maybe 20 yards deeper when Sands is on the ball? Like 20 yards deeper, but then also 
like feet on the touchline. So now that pass is into his feet and then he can turn and go down the line directly if he wants to, or that pass to Busio is on. And then as that pass is hit, then Shaq Moore could make that run. Would that be more of the kind of setup that you would prefer? I think so. And this is a hard part, right? Uh, because there's so many different ways you can space yourself out on the wings, right? That's, that's part of Berhalter's system is that the players can rotate in and out of different spaces. But I think for me, it was a little bit too aggressive with some of that positioning. If Shaq Moore was a little bit deeper, maybe Ariola is the guy in Shaq's, in Shaq Moore's spot in the first place. And then you can bounce the ball to Ariola. And then you have another runner coming out of midfielder. You combine with Busio in that moment. I think that would have been a more reliable position. I'd have to go back and watch the sequence again. But this also, Taylor, this all gets fixed if Busio's cleaner on the ball in that spot. And I, I don't really, yes, it's his fault because he's the one who turned the ball over a number of different times in that position. But it's also a little bit of an indictment on Berhalter because I don't think he was ever, Busio was ever going to be comfortable in that spot. He's playing more as a six now, and I don't think he was ever super clean as an eight in the past under Peter Vermees in Sporting Kansas City. It just felt like an unnatural, awkward spot to put Busio in. And if that's, shoot, man, if that's, if that's Eunice Moose or if that's Weston McKinney, maybe we're not even having this discussion about the U.S. playing too direct because they look a lot better while they play direct and it actually works. And so if we're looking at this Gold Cup roster, at this U.S. team and this performance and learning some things, seeing what we can learn for World Cup qualifying or for where people fit into the depth chart, I think that's a really good note to have on Busio, that hmm. when the U.S. is coming up against like physical opponents who are pressing and challenging, you need somebody who can just be a little bit cleaner on the ball and quicker in those decisions. And I think Busio knows what he wants to do there, but you're right, maybe doesn't have the technical ability or the technical confidence confidence in that moment to play the ball. Maybe Shaq Moore can be a little bit deeper and that would have helped. But I think like we can now learn that like Busio is I think at, at like a further along level than I expected him to be for this team, but at the same time still has areas to improve upon because what I think we keep going back to is the US just not being able to dictate play and slow it down and keep possession and not even slow it down like like slow tempo, but just not let Jamaica have the ball for a couple minutes and keep it moving, even if it's one and two touch passing, even if it's forward and then backwards and from left side to right side and back to left side. I think that it just helps with the confidence and it helps get people into positions where they want to be. I do think the U.S. approach was to be direct, which is why you have those fullbacks making those aggressive runs. And so maybe I'm asking for them to do something that would have changed their fundamental approach. So maybe I'm wrong there. I just it felt like a thing that kept happening even when it wasn't Busio, I think Acosta has one in the second half where he is the ball central. He tries to force a pass through the middle. The ball's cut out. And then because he is in an, in an advanced position, I would argue a little bit too far up the field, it's a 60-yard counterattack for Jamaica. And even earlier uh, in the first half, uh, Acosta has won uh, 1942, 19th minute or 19 minutes, 42 seconds. He receives a ball under pressure. He turns and gets out of it. And it's this moment of like, wow, that's really, really well done. I didn't know he kind of had that that club in the bag but here we go he's evaded pressure and then he he tries to play that kind of direct ball from the left center side of the u.s attack off to the right and it hits a jamaican player and goes back in the jamaica counter then acosta goes in makes the slide tackle that maybe should have been a foul but it's that sort of moment of like good moment winning the ball back good work good hard work bad pass conceded possession now we got to scramble and fight back and it's just that sort of disjointedness that i think uh, caused the United States problems, didn't really let them get that confident level we wanted to see them uh, reach, at least not as early. 
but I think also then had the fight to kind of make up for some of those individual mistakes and didn't really back down or or let their heads hang. So I think it's basically what we've already been saying. It's just like it was it was a good enough performance, but at the same time, I think we learned about some individual vulnerabilities that need to be improved. I totally agree, and I think that's a good lens to look at this game through. The only other real possession-focused thing for the U.S. I want to talk about quickly is just when they got the ball in the final third, which wasn't... Let me let me rephrase that. When they got the ball cleanly into the final third with numbers around the ball and, and opportunities to pass uh, through each other and, and to move the ball systematically into the box, uh, the U.S. relied too much on crosses, I thought, in this game. And yes, that's where the goal comes from. And it's a nice sequence that, that gets the ball to Rodon to then cross it into Hoppy, and it's a good header and all that good stuff. But to me, it looked from the start of this game like the U.S. were a little bit surprised when they made it into the final third and then didn't necessarily have the numbers around the ball consistently enough to play and combine and target those Manchester City zones, those corridors on the outside of the box that you really want to be getting the ball into and then cutting it back. I mean, Taylor, this is rhetorical. You don't actually have to answer. But how many cutbacks did we see from the end line inside the box to uh, an awaiting number nine at the six yard spot or a, a late box arriving number eight in that spot. I, I didn't, I, maybe one, maybe zero bunch. in this game. Yeah. So I think that's another knock and it maybe ties directly into the overly direct play. The U.S. just not generating enough consistent attacking looks to actually run the system that Berhalter is supposedly seems harsh because I have no doubt he's working on things. But but that's kind of what we've come to expect. And it just it really just wasn't there for the U.S. in this game. So let's maybe be a bit more positive as we move yeah. forward in talking <laughs> okay. about what the U.S. I don't, I'm not even saying we've been, we've been negative. I just think there are other positives we, we can talk about. We should talk about the goal and how the U.S. changed things up in the second half. But first, we'll take a break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe. Uh, we've been a little critical of the U.S. in possession in some of their decision-making. Let's talk about some positives, both as a team and on an individual level. Uh, I gave you the first part of that Burhalter quote about how we wanted to kind of be aggressive. We knew it was going to be a challenging game. Uh, and then in the 60th minute, they were going to change something up. Here's the next part of the quote. Uh, so we identified Christian, knowing he plays that position for Seattle, the kind of wide attacker who can also be central. Uh, he's higher up the field on the right hand side Giassi it goes without saying he knows what he's doing as well and they gave us a boost and it was really important to get that in that phase of this game and I think that is like like the kind of vagaries of that statement aside I think it speaks to we want to get through the 60th minute if Jamaica are pressing and being very like physically engaging 
they can't do that the whole game. And I think they did pick their spots in the first half. But I think in the second half, there were more tired legs. It got a little bit sloppier from a Jamaican perspective. Uh, and I think that was where the U.S. did start to dictate play a little bit more, did start to have better sequences of possession, and then does ultimately get the winning goal, uh, courtesy of Matthew Hoppe. And then he immediately subs out, which did feel like it was it, it had been coming, that change. But I'm glad he ended up getting the goal. So, Joe, that's sort of the uh, the groundwork laid for the second half. What would you like to talk about in terms of how the U.S. were able to get this result? So the one adjustment that I really noticed from a tactical standpoint, because I think you walked us through the personnel adjustments well. I don't I don't really think Zardes and Roldan had the biggest impact. Uh, Roldan obviously gets the assist. But I, there is something to be said. This is an intangible thing, which kind of bothers me because I don't know how to quantify that, which is the point of that word. But I, <laughs> there is something to be said for their experience level and their their past experience playing in games like this. And so I, I, that's those changes are fine for me. The tactical adjustment I noticed in the second half was Gianluca Busio as that right-sided central midfielder starting to drop deeper down into midfield a little bit more and almost slide into Shaq Moore's spot at right back, which then allowed more to go forward and you still maintain a little bit of balance in possession. Now, the U.S. did that a number of times in the first half, but they didn't deliberately try to play through that side quite as much as they did in the second half. So Busio would drop, and then you had Areola tucked inside and Shaq more wide, or then you had Roldan once he comes on for Areola. Then you have him in the pocket a little bit narrower and then Shaq more, and you had that nice triangle and that worked out a lot more for the United States. It helped them control possession with with Jamaica as well dropping, like you'd mentioned, Taylor. It looked like they were a bit more content to sit a little bit deeper and absorb possession, absorb pressure from the United States. And so those things maybe combined led to some possession moments where the U.S. did put a number of different people's insteps on the ball, as you mentioned earlier, Taylor. There's a long sequence in that 69th minute. Uh, right at right at the end of the 68th into the 70th. That's 21 passes. The U.S. moved the ball from side to side, and it looks nice. They're actually getting the ball into dangerous spots, and I believe that sequence ends with Matthew Hoppy drifting over from the left wing all the way into the right half space into that Man City zone to get into that outer corridor of the box. And so those moves were lacking, I thought, throughout the game, and it was encouraging to see a clear tactical tweak from Berhalter that got Busio in a better position for him that then could also help the rest of the United States move the ball systematically into dangerous spots. Joe, I like that you were frustrated about trying to like verbalize the intangibles because I think that's also <laughs> something that Berhalter was struggling with with that quote, basically saying like, Chris Johnny's played there, you know, Jossie, he's been here. And I think what he was trying to say <laughs> is like, we wanted to put veterans in who would be maybe a little bit calmer, but just also wouldn't be as, as, like shocked coming into a game like this. And it's a thing that uh, Stu Holden talked about when Alvis Powell had to come out in the first half, just that it, it can be a big ask coming into a high tempo back and forth game and having to kind of just dive right in and get up to that level quickly. And I think when you introduce veterans like the two we've already mentioned, plus like Reggie Cannon coming on later on, I think all of that was meant to provide stability. And once you have a bit more stability, you can then make those little positional adjustments that I think do have a, a strongly positive impact. 
But I think there are other players that I wish had had a, a bigger impact, and Daryl DK is one of those. I said I was going to be positive, and I took us right to a negative point. Uh, DK with, I think, 14 touches in the first half. It took him until the 50, late in the 59th minute to get his third of the second half. So 17 touches in about 60 minutes is not what you would have wanted from Daryl DK. And then he subs off in the 63rd. Uh, a decent amount of criticism thrown his way, a little bit for Paul Ariola, who comes off at the same time. But I think for DK, I, I, I feel for him because of the way this game went and that they were kind of looking long at times, but then trying to play in defeat at times. And when you're the forward having to kind of figure out which is which and when, it's just more calculation you have to do. But this game was was so, in my mind, crying out for somebody to just kind of make things happen and make Jamaica uncomfortable and keep trying and keep just like forcing them backwards and helping dictate the tempo and control of the game. And I don't think DK did that as well. I think the attacking player who probably did that the best is Matthew Hoppy. And I think he had an inconsistent game, as I said, but that he was willing to take people on and try stuff. I think it also helped the United States as they're making those adjustments and bringing in those kind of veteran experienced players to just start to feel like maybe there's a chance to get that winner, which they eventually do. I feel for DK, man. He's been playing soccer for a year or playing professional Good soccer point. for a year. And and he's coming into this lineup after getting exactly one start in this tournament as a nine, as, as a lone number nine. That comes against yeah. Martinique, which is maybe the game we can take the least away from. He gets the start against Canada, but he, he does it alongside Jossie Zardes. And neither one of those players had a strong game. And it was a weird system that Bolter clearly didn't want to go back to in this game. And so this... This game against Jamaica is kind of our our one chance to evaluate DK in within the framework that we'd like to see him in within the four three three or or really any three forward front with him as the single number nine and and he just he didn't play well he couldn't hold up the ball effectively he he had one or two nice moments early on of hold up play one I think just he kind of happens into then he has a nice one in the third minute with a, just a little baby pressure on his back. And then he loses the ball a bunch of times after that. 14th minute, 20th minute, 31st minute, 40. I mean, it's a long list. I stopped counting in the second half because he was really struggling to to keep a defender on his back. And to be fair to him, the, the strongest Jamaican center back in this team was Damian Lowe, who is just a gigantic presence in the back. Super strong, low center of gravity while still being a tall dude. He is he is a player who actually can physically go toe-to-toe with Daryl DK. We were led to believe that there weren't any out there. There are, just a few, and Jamaica had one of them. So that's another caveat. DK is a young player, hasn't had much time at the pro level yet. But I, I worry for him on a, on a personal level about his chances of being in the World Cup qualifying roster. Really? The, the Athletic reported uh, earlier this week, or I guess last week now, that Berhalter's going to call a bigger group of players and then likely change up the game day roster for the, the triple game windows starting in September. But, I mean, Taylor, did you see anything from Daryl DK that would make you think, man, this guy's probably the fit over Jossie's artist? Like, I, I didn't see that, and I haven't seen that in this tournament, and time is running out for us to see that. I don't expect DK to start in the next game against Qatar. I'd be shocked, honestly, if it wasn't Jossie Zardes, and I have a hard time believing that DK is going to go in over Josh Sargent. Maybe I'm being reactionary. I probably am here to an extent, but I just think this was a game where DK needed a strong performance to, to really work his way up that depth chart, and instead we still just got massive question marks there. Yeah, I think I think it was probably his worst performance for the U.S., and not saying that he was like especially shambolically bad. That's a category reserved only for 
a few U.S. internationals, but I, <laughs> but I think it was an unremarkable performance from a player in a position where we needed some level of remarkableness. <laughs> like basically, yeah. I, I I I struggle to think of more than a couple little moments where Daryl DK stood out in a positive way, and I think a lot of that is the way he was defended and the way the U.S. was playing. But I think still. If you're going to be that number nine, if you're going to be that vocal, if you're going to be that presence, number one, you have to be vocal. And I think about how, like, it's an unfair comparison because Luis Suarez is Luis Suarez, but there's no way that he, that he, Luis Suarez, is playing that same role and not having words with somebody or telling people where he specifically wants the ball or just adjusting his positioning a little bit so that he gets in better spots. And, and I think, Daryl DK, for his for his part, I think was prioritizing. I'm doing what I was asked to do, and I'm working very hard, and I'm making the runs, and I'm dropping in when I need to, and that is all good. It is all like technically what is being asked of him, but at the same time, if it's not having an impact, you want to see that next level of adjustment, of communication, of just figuring things out. And I don't think we saw that from him. That said, I'm not sure we saw that from. For many players, because I wouldn't say Giassi's artist came in and looked remarkably better and, sure, and had sure. like a significant like number of chances that Daryl DK wasn't getting. So I, I think it was the type of performance that hopefully will be forgotten. But if it's if we do see Daryl DK maybe not get into that roster, I think maybe this one looms a little bit larger, at least in Greg Berhalter's mind. Uh, Joe, for you, are there players who did sort of um, improve their stock from uh, from the beginning of this game to the end? Are there players who you think yeah. maybe uh, get a circle in Greg Berhalter's match notes and, and just a little bit like, didn't know you could do that. Maybe we'll see more of that. <laughs> I've got three guys, and they all play kind of close to each other. James Sands, Miles Robinson, and Matt Turner. And I guess we can start with Sands and Robinson because they have a very similar role. They were excellent last night, I thought, defensively specifically. They had some nice line-breaking passes. Robinson cued a lot of the U.S.'s best attacking moments early on in this game. Sands had some nice balls as well. But they weren't perfect with the ball at their feet, and no one on this U.S. team was last night. But defensively. With some of the the positioning issues we talked about, or maybe issues is not the right word. Either way, with the fullback so high, Sands and Robinson were isolated 1v1 a lot. And they did a phenomenal job of containing Corey Burke and Bobby Reed and Junior Flemings. and Tur- I mean, they, they just were locked down defenders in this game. And that's exactly what you need to be when so many of your attacking teammates are way up the field and you are isolated. You need to be strong. And I, I thought they were just excellent and and Taylor I'm guessing you echo a lot of those same sentiments. I do. I do because I, and it's where you drew the distinction of like defensively because I do think there was, you know, the moment we've already talked about with Sands. There's a few more of those and there's one or two where maybe Robinson uh is just a little bit too like confident without backing it up and I think gets caught once in possession and once I think has an errant pass. But those moments aside, I thought defensively they were the rocks that you need your center backs to be. They were no nonsense when it was required, but they also allowed for some nonsense when it did allow for it. Uh, and so I thought it, it was great performances from them. I thought it was an excellent performance from Matt Turner. And that's a thing that we've said a couple different times in this tournament. It's gotten to where I feel like there's a very strong argument for him to, at the very least, be the number two. And if we pay more attention to his distribution, or if I pay more attention to it, because that's obviously a thing that Burhalter prioritizes, but I can't say I've watched it with great detail. Like, 
uh, Rob Stone threw this out in the post game that maybe that competition for the number one spot is more open than we thought. And I, it sounds strange to go off of this gold cup, but like goalkeeper is one of those positions where I think it's, it's pretty stable from one game to the next for Greg Borhalter and what he wants his goalkeeper to be doing. And I think Matt Turner has for the most part done everything you could ask of him, including pull out those big saves and those big moments when the U.S. has had a breakdown or allowed a, a good shooting opportunity. Those are when you need your goalkeeper, and we've talked about it before, to just be alert and alive to everything that's happening. And be at the 92nd minute or the 42nd minute, they've got to be able to make that save when they're called upon to make it. And here Matt Turner called upon more times than he has been in the tournament, or I think as many times overall as he was in the tournament. But he rose to the occasion and kept the clean sheet. I, he has kind of rocketed up my uh, my depth chart rankings, Joe. What did you make of him? I thought he was great. I mean, he has that save after Matthew Hoppy turns the ball over trying to pirouette through yep. 87 Jamaican players. He has that save from a junior Fleming shot. And maybe the shot's going wide. It's a little tricky to tell. But he doesn't take any chances. And you can see his athletic ability and his range and, and just his, his shot-stopping work there. And we've seen that a number of different times in this tournament. I think... I think the U.S. has only given up one goal in this tournament so far, and it's been on on a penalty penalty kick. Yeah, so I'd have to dive deeper into the advanced numbers that I'm not sure I have access to for this tournament. But still, he's he's been good. I mean, you you can tell that pretty clearly by the score lines here and, and some of the individual shots that he's saved. I would feel very comfortable with him starting. I feel more comfortable personally with, with Matt Turner starting than Zach Steffen in an important World Cup qualifier. And I know there are going to be a ton of folks out there that don't agree, and that's okay. But if, if the, the one thing we do agree on about Matt Turner after this tournament, everybody, is that he belongs on the top three depth chart for the United States men's national team, along with Ethan Horvath, along with Zach Steffen. It's going to be Beralter's call to decide who starts, and I, I would go Horvath or, or Turner over Steffen. But it's nice to have Really? You'd go some... Horvath over Steffen? Yeah, I, I think so. Maybe I'm just blinded by that epic CONCACAF Nations League final performance from him. But I just I don't think <laughs> Zach Steffen is a good shot stopper. I don't think he's a very good shot stopper, especially relative to Matt Turner and probably even relative to Horvath. So either way, though, Taylor, my, my point is those three guys are going to be in World Cup qualifying barring injury, and I think we can all agree on that. We can. Uh, one other player I wanted to spotlight who I think will be involved in World Cup qualifying is Sebastian Legette, who had another... Uh, I, I forget who, who <laughs> tweeted this about a different player. I think it was about Roldan, but I'm going to say it about, uh, Sebastian Legette that it's like air conditioning. That like you don't really notice it when it's on, though people might be able to hear it was my Will air Parchment. conditioning unit. Will Parchment, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes, and people can probably hear my air conditioning unit in the background. But <laughs> for Legette, like, when he's working, when he's doing what you need him to be doing for this team, you maybe don't notice him as, notice him as much. Uh, and when he doesn't do the things, that's when you maybe do notice him. And I think on, on this occasion, I thought it was a solid game for Legette, who then had little veteran moments. Like he has won, uh, 33 minutes and 19 seconds. When it's, when I note the seconds, it means it was a big moment. Uh, and in this one, it's the one where he, Jamaica have a very good counterattacking opportunity and Legette. It's maybe 15 yards at a dead sprint to close down and then puts in an inch-perfect slide tackle that if he doesn't get it, it's definitely going to be a yellow card or worse if it's a, if it's like an even less calculated challenge. But he wins the tackle and then just pops up and helps start directing play again. And I think how often I saw him just making little adjustments to receive the ball and buy a teammate time or just the way he was kind of communicating off the ball and coaching and helping players with their positioning. I thought another just like solid game 
game for Sebastian Legette. And on a night when the U.S. gets that win, a solid, a solid performance is a solid result. I think Legette is one of those guys that looks better when there's better players around him. Yep. And I agree with you, Taylor. I think he had a solid game, but some of the left-sided work from the U.S. was a little clunky with Matthew mm-hmm. Hoppy oftentimes not looking like he knew quite where to go. There's yep. a moment early on where Hoppy and Legette kind of make the same run. I think it's in the fourth minute and they play it off pretty well because Hoppy then goes to break in behind Jamaica's defensive line and Legette hangs back a little bit. But it's almost like they're moving in exact sync and in, in perfect sync. And it, it feels weird. It feels awkward. It was too crowded. And Legette, when he has more time and more space, which would be created by Christian Pulisic knowing where to be. And it would be created by maybe another – left back's a bad example because there's not a lot of depth there. But when there's when there's more defined rotations and cleaner positioning around him, Legette looks even stronger. And so he's kind of – in my view, he's had some good performances and some not-so-strong performances in, the, in this tournament. But he just kind of goes along at, at 50 out of 100 each game. And, and I think last night was another decent 50 performance. So, Joe, uh, you said you would be surprised if we saw Daryl DK start. I, I think I began that by saying, so Daryl DK starting is going to be a surprise, which felt weird and disjointed. Uh, <laughs> Joe, we do have Qatar coming up on, I believe, Thursday evening. Uh, they, as I said, the 3-2 win over El Salvador. They went up 3-0. They conceded two goals. Uh, and I think that was less about like a, a problem with their system or approach and more so that they were up 3-0 and I think thought they were pretty home and dry and then they were not for a chunk of that game. But I, th- I think we'll see them in a back five, not a back three, but a back five. I think we know they can be good on the counter. Uh, Pedro Miguel is a very good attacking right wing back for them. Uh, do you expect the U.S. to to change it up? Do you, are you expecting a back three or do you think we're sort of reaching the point of the tournament when we kind of drill down into the same basic approach and then we get little adjustments in there? Or might we still see some big swings from Burhalter uh, in the semifinal? We could see some big swings, but I would expect this 4-3-3 to stick for no other reason than the fact that the U.S. doesn't have a ton of options at center back to play three of the back. We saw Henry Kessler get called in for Walker Zimmerman, who, who's out with an injury now. And, and Kessler could play, Pines could play, but I don't think Burhalter has a ton of faith in either one of those guys yet. And so James Sands and Robinson make sense as the two center backs in a back four for me. DK, like I said earlier, I don't think we'll start. I, I bet it would be Jossie Zardes. And maybe there'll be a tweak in midfield. I would have loved to see Eric Williamson in this game, Taylor. I think he would have been a much more natural fit for the role that Busio was initially asked to play, working in between the lines and actually being able to control the ball in the half turn and, and drive forward. So maybe we see Eric Williamson come in to try to disrupt Qatar a little bit more than Busio can at the number eight. But shape-wise, I would expect to see a 4-3-3 with a lot of the same guys that played against Jamaica. Yeah, and and I would be good with that because I think for the most part it put players in familiar positions. And if you had put them in in non-familiar positions or if you kind of changed it up even more, I think against that like high press from Jamaica and that intensity of that press... I think the U.S. looks even more disjointed and causes themselves even more problems. So I think to stick with the shape and then just have those those little tinkering moments of, okay, we're going to have Busio or if it is Williamson, just start a little bit deeper at times to be more proactive when we do get forward. Or if it is, we need to work on that rotation between Hoppy and Lejet and, and make sure that things, like we don't have people running into the same space, but we do have overloads occurring. And there were moments when the U.S. did sort of have that that... It, domino is the wrong way, but that's the best way I can explain it is to have like when DK 
drops in to try to like link up play in the middle, then it would be like uh, Legette making a run to where DK had been, and then it would be Hoppy dropping into the face vacated by Legette. And, and it was just like that's what you want to see is that sort of automatic rotation to find space and to open up gaps. And that is a thing that we'll need to see from the United States against Qatar, who I would expect to be more defensive. Maybe they will press and be aggressive like Jamaica. I think they'll be more conservative. That's just my guess. I might well be wrong. But that's where I think the patterns and the repeti- repetition <laughs> – the reputation, the repetition, uh, will help the United States against an, an unknown opponent because Qatar are unknown to the United States, at least this particular Qatar team. They'll have watched footage, but they won't have played against them. So I think it makes sense to kind of stick with what brung you and hope that it gets you through. How epic is it that the U.S. is playing Qatar in the semifinal of the Gold Cup? I mean, there's just there's just some – I saw Pablo Maurer tweet about this. The U.S. winning uh, against Jamaica just aligns perfectly for them to crash out to Qatar in North America, <laughs> North and Central America's regional championship. Yeah. Just the stars are aligning in a, a perfect Pablo kind of way, I guess. Yeah, and for a Qatar team that I think a couple months ago were still playing in the Copa America, <laughs> it's it's an even stranger wrinkle that now they've jumped to a different confederation that is still not their own, and now they're in the semifinal. I think Brazil has won the Gold Cup before on one occasion, so <laughs> well, it's it's not unprecedented, but I think uh, parallels between Brazil and Qatar are, are limited from that point on. <laughs> Joe, anything else uh, to talk about from USA Jamaica or uh, ahead of USA Qatar? I don't think so. I'm excited for that game on Thursday. This was a fun show, and and we've got more coming. All right. I'm going to go practice my tongue twisters so I don't get caught up quite as much. Uh, But until... I have, I have done that practice. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for taking all the time to make sense of the USA's 1-0 win over Jamaica, a result that maybe didn't impress from start to finish, but did give us some impressive individual moments and I think helped us figure some things out as we went along in this conversation. So, Joe, thank you for all of those things. You got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We will talk to you all again at some point tomorrow. It'll be myself, Joe, and Jordan breaking down the USA's, the US women's uh, final game of their Olympic group stage competition versus Australia. But until then, thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon. (laughs) 